0: Well, good morning, Grace Church of DuPage. What a joy it is to see you all. I just want to look at you all so I could say that honestly. I'm in a strange place. I'm always in a strange place, but this is a stranger place than normal because we're kind of in between some sermon series. So this is kind of a a one-off message. And it's interesting, I was supposed to be elsewhere today preaching, and then the elsewhere got back to me and said, we don't need you, man. (laughs) Took that kind of personally, and that's all right. But then what happened was I cleared out my schedule teaching ABF, and then uh, Pastor Darrell said, hey, I'm going to be in Winnetka. Is anybody able to teach? So I said, well, by the grace of God, I'm able to teach. But I was in the same boat where I was going to be, kind of in between some things, right? So we're just coming off this massive Easter celebration, Good Friday, the resurrected Christ. And then after this, we're going to start the book of Revelation. Simple pamphlet-sized book, no problems there, right? Right through it. what does a guy do when he's got one message in between those things? What in the world do you do? So I'm asking the Lord to just give me light, just help me. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do, Lord. And, and so he, I think he allowed a thought to come into my mind that was pretty stunning. And it was this. This is pretty deep. So if this blows you away, forgive me. I hate Christmas ornaments. And then I'm thinking, like, why would that come into my mind? It's kind of weird. And it's not that I really hate Christmas ornaments per se. I just hate taking down and putting away Christmas ornaments. Now, my wife will say, why are you talking about putting away Christmas ornaments, dude? You don't do any of it. And she would be right. <laughs> but I'm just talking about like the starkness of, like with Christmas, for example, there's this huge buildup Bing Crosby's playing, you got the garland out, trees up, and then in one fell swoop, it's gone. Like the day after, it all seems so hollow. That kind of bums me out. So, to to overcome that, I've been trying to adopt this uh, bumper sticker mentality, right? Jesus, the reason for the season. And I'm trying to carry the fact that God came and took on human flesh Before me, even after I leave Christmas. It's a year-round thing. So now what happens, we just finished another season. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're focusing on that. And I think it's important that we don't just pack away the Easter decorations, the dresses, the ham. I like ham. The Thursday, the Friday, and the Sunday, just these glorious times together focusing on what Christ has done and what God has done in us through Christ. I can't just do that and move on. So this morning, I'm like, all right, well, uh, I'm, I'm, gonna, we're, I'm gonna teach just a certain type of, there's different types of messages. There's different types of messages. and And I, when I explain it to younger teachers, I, I use the example of a hot rod. Younger kids may not know what a hot rod is. It means a really fast, loud car. When you hit the gas, it smells. It's fantastic. And one type of teaching, one type of teaching, is what is called expositions. That's usually what we do here. So that's where the hot rod's in the driveway. And you're picking apart the engine to figure out why does it go so fast? And why does it smell so good? And you're just picking it apart and you're putting it back together. Or there's an exhortation. An exhortation typically is a message where we are tracing something that God has commanded us to do. So, if the hot rod's in your driveway, you can hear dad saying, Don't you dare bring a drink into there, and don't you dare come near the speed limits. So, some commands when you're driving the hot rod. And then there's messages that are called encouragements, and that's kind of where I want to go today. And, and uh, that's where the hot rod's in the driveway, it's purring like a kitten, and dad ain't nowhere to be found. And you're just going to get in that car, and you're just going to drive it and enjoy it. That's an encouragement. And that's, that's, as we're kind of in between some big expositions, the book of Acts, then we went through the Easter season, and before we go into Revelation, I just want to encourage us from Scripture. And I'd like to do that this morning, and it's going to be a very short passage. And I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. In your pew Bibles, it's on 1002, 1002, or at least that's what the slide says. So I tend to believe it. Slides never lie. We're only going to read two verses. Two verses. And somehow I want to make sure that we're, we're wringing, I'm thinking of a wet towel, we're wringing all the water of glory out of the Easter season but also, we just have something in our mind just to encourage us as we go through the days that are still before us up until Christ returns. So if you have your eyes on your Bibles, we're simply going to read verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 14 begins this way. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to life long slavery let's pray boy father my knees just almost buckle just even reading those words as we we think about all that christ has accomplished for us so lord encourage your people draw those who don't know you towards you Father, encourage your people the only way we can be encouraged, and that is to focus on Christ. Oh Lord, do your will this morning. Bless us in ways that we came in here not even being able to imagine for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our message title, oh, hey, there it is. Our message title simply is Jesus, Identifier, Destroyer, and Deliverer. It's a scary thing to jump into the book of Hebrews. It's a thick book, thick book. It's written to a group of Jewish believers who seem to be undergoing some tremendous persecution. Some, perhaps, because of the persecution, have turned away from Christ. Maybe even gone back to Judaism. And the author seems to be saying, look, 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 (laughs) look. You you can't go back. There's nothing to go back to. It's all been fulfilled in the Son, Whatever you are thinking about returning to is gone. You see this Jesus, he's better than fill in the blank. The the early couple chapters, it's clearly he's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the priesthood. And this letter is an argument about how Christ fulfills the promises in the Old Testament, made to the people of God. And because they are fulfilled, there's nothing to go back to. So we want to jump into this thick, beautiful book and just try to extract some encouragement based on what God, through the writer, is telling his people. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's that warning. This Jesus is so great. He has fulfilled everything. Everything pointed to Messiah, and he came. Here he is. He's the son. You, you, you can't turn your back on him. It was this Jesus, the writer continues, Who was made a little lower than the angels, verse 9 tells us. Why? So that he might taste death for everyone. Moving on to verse 10. It was this Jesus, the founder of our salvation, who was made perfect through suffering. So if you're in Jesus Christ right now and you're suffering, that's part of the path of following Jesus. God makes his people perfect through suffering just like he made Christ perfect through suffering. And then the writer talks about a gathering of family, a gathering of brothers, all that God the Father has given Jesus, all who will trust in him and all who will suffer with him as part of their sanctification. And then we get to verses 14 and 15, which is just like a fire hydrants of blessing. A fire hydrant of blessing. And I want to look at three points from these two verses. And at no extra charge, I'm going to throw in a fourth point at the end. So here are my three points. The God, verses, verses 14 and 15 reveal the God who identifies with us. The king who destroys our enemy. And then the rescuer who delivers us. Point number one, the God who identifies with us. Verse 14, look at the beginning of verse 14. Since therefore the children, so this is referring back to the quote of Isaiah 8 in verse 13. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. Stop for a minute. Just stop for a minute. What happens sometimes when we hear certain things, they get flattened out in our mind. Stop for a minute and think about the fact that God took on flesh and blood just like you. Just like me. Skin, hair, eyeballs. Eyeballs. There's deep theology there. We could start with that, absolutely. We're talking about the incarnation. What we celebrate at Christmas season. The birth of the God-man. Who would be the perfect substitute for sinful man. Living a life that we never did for us. Deep, deep, heavy stuff. But I want to camp just for a minute on this devotionally and think through what this means, this, the fact that God would take on our flesh and blood, just like us, become like us, this reveals the love of our God. This reveals His willingness to take on human flesh to save humanity. This reveals the heart of a God who is willing to become like us to save us. And by taking on flesh, he's identifying with us in a very real way. He certainly is identifying with us as our substitute. He will go to the cross to die in our place. The perfect human being. Amen. But also, he's identifying with us in some very particular ways. In addition to that, verse 17, if you were to scan your eyes down, would say, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Verse 18 tells us that he himself has suffered when tempted. If you were to skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 15, it says that this Christ sympathizes with our weakness. Just let that sink in. Don't brush by that. Because all of us are battling, all of us. All of us have weaknesses. All of us have trials. And we have a God who sympathizes. We have a Christ who understands our weakness and he sympathizes with us. This is a God who seeks to identify with his people, This is a God who displays his compassion for his people. This is a God who desires to empathize with all of us in our weaknesses, in our temptations, in our trials. Jesus understands. Jesus understands. And that should be an immense comfort to us. He understands where we are at. He understands why we do what we do the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, it's important that we draw an, a line because he understands doesn't mean that he condones or approves, but he understands. And he offers himself as a solution to the ugly. He understands. Now the rest of verse 14, if you go back to our text, tells us that Jesus took on human flesh to accomplish a very particular mission. And that would be simply point number two. He is the king who destroys our enemy. End of verse 14 says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, the devil. He became like one of us to die. For several reasons, many that we we, we were were holding up on Good Friday in our readings, the reason why Christ came to die, we could spend the remainder of, of the afternoon unpacking. But the writer of Hebrews is very pointed, very pointed. He's got the fine tooth pen out right here. He came to destroy. Oh, that's not the that's not the picture of the the, the long hair sweep Jesus you see in like the antique stores, is it? Jesus came to destroy. He's the destroyer. What did he come to destroy? Well, note in your passage the connection between the devil and the power of death. Destroy one and you destroy them both. Human beings have three enemies. Sin, death, and the devil. And they're all interwoven. They all play off one another. Death is Satan's greatest weapon. He is the one who introduced sin into the creation and death followed. And what he does is he tempts humanity towards it. He puts the cheese in the trap. So then when we bite, whammo! Now, that's a pretty graphic depiction. But that's how powerful sin and death is. Then what he does is when we fall into sin, he accuses us before God when we sin. And that weapon, death, has all of humanity in its crosshairs. All of it. Because of sin, all people die. 100% of people die. Scripture calls that physical death. The first death. And as sad as it is to lose someone you love, that first death, they're no longer with you, no more phone calls, no more visits on a Sunday afternoon, that's not the scariest and saddest part, the first death. Because of sin, all people are dead spiritually. Spiritually separated from god and if you die physically separated from god you will suffer what scripture calls the second death condemnation and judgment that is the state of all sinful humanity it don't look good kids unless 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 God makes a way out of it. And as Christians, we're here to rejoice in the fact that God made a way out of it. He made a way out of it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He comes, He takes on our flesh, the God-man, and He's going to stare straight in the face of the enemy, straight into it, And defeat him. He's gonna take his greatest weapon and defeat it. How? By using, falling prey to the weapon. Satan's greatest weapon is a sword. He takes Christ's head off with the sword. Then the head is on all of a sudden. It didn't work, it's been defeated. Christ dies. But this wasn't just a normal human dying. Because in the normal human order, we die because we are tainted with sin. We die because we are sinners, not Jesus. See, death had nothing on Jesus. Nothing. He wasn't born with a nature to sin. He never once committed sin. He withstood the temptations. Uh, here, Mr. Mouse, here's the cheese in the trap. Come on! He, he passed through the temptations flawlessly. As he's preparing for his departure in John 14.30, we, we find these words captured by Christ. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Death and the devil had nothing on him. Nothing. And yet to defeat death, to defeat death, he had to pass through it. To defeat death, for poor, miserable sinners like you and me, he had to go through it. Allow himself to be subjected to it. He dies on the cross to pay for the sins. God lays his wrath upon him, and in that, Jesus takes on death, the greatest weapon Satan had. He takes it on, and boy, for a little bit, it looked like it had won, didn't it? And then the disciples run to the tomb. And they discovered it didn't win. He was raised. He had defeated death. There is now a way out of this. Oh, thank you, Lord. There is now a way out of this. Death has been defeated, the sting has been taken out of it, the victory has been won for us. This, brothers and sisters, is the basis for our ability to live fearlessly. Trusting in Jesus brings us back to God. We are no longer spiritually dead, but we are reconciled, we are alive in him. Even though these bodies still die because Jesus defeated physical death, we will follow him in resurrection. Someday, even physical death will be no more. The totality of death will be swallowed up in victory. Sin, death, and the devil are the enemies of all mankind. And you got two options. And right now, you're, you're in one of the options. It's a multiple choice test. Choose the one that best describes you. Option number one is you're going to try to fight him yourself, either through denying it's going to happen or I'm just going to take my chances before him and you will lose miserably, eternally. Or option two, you will trust in the one who won the victory for you. You will trust in the one who loved you enough to take on flesh and blood for you. To take on flesh and blood to be like you. You will trust in the one who stared down. He took on death head on for you. You will trust in the one who defeated death through resurrection for you. Will you trust him? Are you trusting him? He's the only way. He is the only destroyer. He is the only destroyer of sin. He's the only destroyer of death. And he's the only destroyer of the devil. Have you entered into that victory by faith? If so, rejoice. You're on the winning side. Not only is Christ the identifier through taking on a flesh and blood, the God who understands and is sympathetic, is compassionate, and because he took on flesh and blood, he is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect man. Not only is he the destroyer, the only one who could destroy our enemies, sin, death, and the devil, he's also the rescuer. Look at verse 15. This is so rich what the writer is saying here. So not only does Christ destroy the one that has the power of death, the devil, he also delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Note the two things connected there. Slavery and the fear of death. Slavery and the fear of death. All human beings live with a fear of death. And fear is incredibly controlling. If somebody can make you fear, you're very easily controllable. So you're in a bank. You're just looking to withdraw some money, and some guy sticks a gun in your gut. Are you gonna do whatever he says? Of course you are, why? You don't wanna die. That's how the fear of death can control. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying because you don't fear death because you're in Jesus, you tell him to buzz off. That wouldn't be the best thing to do, but that's just an illustration. All human beings live with a constant fear of death. The writer says that it's a lifelong enslavement. Jesus, by defeating death, the greatest weapon of the devil, frees, frees, frees all of those who because of him no longer are enslaved. We are no longer held captive We, as Christians, no longer need to fear death. I want you to think about that. Unbelievers need to fear death. They do fear death. Those who haven't trusted in Christ's victory, his death and his resurrection, they really need to fear death because once this body dies, the first death, once this body, and it's coming, it's coming, then comes the second death. And that's part of their fear. Calvin, Calvin was, is helpful here. Listen to what John Calvin says here. I think this is helpful. He says, hence is that bondage throughout life, even perpetual anxiety, by which unhappy souls are tormented. For through a consciousness of sin, the judgment of God is ever presented to the view. Bad news, good news, from this fear Christ has delivered us, who by undergoing our curse has taken away what is dreadful in death. Thank you, Lord. The unbeliever, and I agree with Calvin here, so that means he's right. The unbeliever, they fear death for many reasons, but the the chief reason, I believe, is they know there's a judgment coming. They know through creation, through creation there's a God. And a God who calls upon us to acknowledge He is God and then order our lives according to His authority as God. They know that. Romans 1. Romans 2 tells us, in addition to knowing there's a God, they have the works of the law written on their heart. They know it's wrong to lie. They know it's wrong to steal. They know it's wrong to have another God. They know it's wrong to dishonor their mother and dad. They know they know they're lawbreakers and their conscience is telling them that. They know there's a God they know they're guilty and they know there's something coming after this. They do. And the fear, that fear of death enslaves the chief coping mechanism is to try to ignore it. Pretend like it's not coming. Well, I don't believe in your big tooth fairy in the sky or just all kinds of... They, they know. For although they knew God, Think of how people, the difference, if you've if you've if you've been around enough death in your life, you've had the privilege of going to a funeral, or I'll I'll even just say a wake for a believer and a wake for an unbeliever. You could not have two more radically different environments. If you walk into the wake for the believer, there's hope. There's talk about Jesus. There's talk about being back in God's presence for those who are with them in Christ. There's hope of seeing them again in that glory. There's, just, there's, this, there's this mourning undergirded with this hope. You go to an, one, a, a wake for an unbeliever that is filled with mostly unbelievers. There's none of that. We want to talk about the cubs. So we want to talk. Why? Because death is right there before us, and I'm scared to death of it. I don't even want to acknowledge it. I want to get as far away from it as possible. That's not us. We don't, we don't fear it. Think of the millions spent on surgical procedures that make it look like death ain't coming closer. Clearly, I haven't had any of those. For us, as believers, Christ followers, that is not us. Our view of death has changed. Will we not look forward to leaving loved ones? Well, of course. There is an earthly mourning. There is an earthly sadness if you're a parent of leaving your children. There is that. But there ought not to be a fear we are no longer slaves to the fear of it. Those chains have been broken. We have been set free. Paul tells the Philippians that death is now what? Say it. Gain. Gain. This is really good. This is good. Man, oh man. I mean, we got, we got something around the drum set to not make your ears bleed. This is good. There's so much good. Look at your sons and your daughters. This is good. This is good. What's coming is even better. As good as this is, we don't want to become Gnostics, right? Where we, oh, physical, anything here. If physical is bad, it's a... no, no, no. God is showing His grace and His goodness and stuff right now, right now. But what's coming is even better. Exponentially better. It's gain. It's not loss, it's gain. It isn't to be feared, but rather in some ways to be longed for. I'm 52 and I've got the body of a 92 year old. I'm starting to long for death. And someday this body ain't gonna hurt, it ain't gonna make all kinds of weird noises. You start longing for that day when this body will be raised incorruptible. The, I ain't going to need these anymore. I'm going to be able to see the glory of God just perfectly. It's coming. It isn't to be feared, but rather in some ways it is to be longed for. It. And, and you will be brought home into the perfect, eternal presence of your creator and your redeemer why is that important for us why is that important for us to understand well before we get to that before we get to the what ifs which is your your bonus roman numeral (laughs) oh oh, they told me do not go outside of the flowers there we go so so here's here's why we have to understand this we have to understand this i'm going to read this twice I, i blew it on the slides If, if we're truly, if we're truly going to deny ourselves here, if we're truly going to glorify God now, bam, in this world, we've got to believe what's coming is greater than now. We have to. Satan, if you're in Christ, he can't have you. So his goal is to make you as impotent as possible. And part of his goal is to make us so fat that we don't want to give this up for that. And we end up looking much like the world around us. If we are truly to deny ourselves and this world in pursuit of following Jesus, we must believe what is coming is greater than now. If we don't believe that, we will not give up the now. Think of the impact of a life lived with no fear of death. With a belief that this is good, but I ain't living ultimately for this. Brothers and sisters, Christ has set us free from slavery to fear and death, and now, or slavery to the fear of death, and now has made death gain in which we enter into a massive reward. Now we get to what if. Or if you want to say this is kind of just some practical things we want to consider as we get ready to wrap up the message. What if? Number one, what if we truly took hold of the fact that Jesus understands No matter what in the world you're going through, Jesus totally gets it. And he understands. And his response is compassion and sympathy, not condemnation. What would our lives look like? What would our prayer lives look like in terms of frequency and fervency? We truly believe that we can go to the Jesus in prayer who understands and he cares and he's compassionate and he understands. He understands. What would our gospel message look like if we saw through the manifestation of the sin that was before us and we showed them the Christ who not only understands, but died for that sin. What if, what if, part of our imitation of Christ, so that's what we're we're called to do, we're called to imitate Jesus, and the Spirit's great joy is to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. What if, part of our imitation of Christ, Was an attempt to identify with the people around us through radical understanding, empathy, and compassion. Not beginning with a word of condemnation. That's my greatest. That's that's my greatest weakness. I'm I'm, man. I'm ready to hit you over the head with a mallet. Not immediately being a fixer but a willingness to listen, a willingness to hear, a willingness to connect with them and connect them to Christ. Now again, hear me. When I, whenever you start talking like this, people then all of a sudden say, oh, that's liberal speak, man. No. Because when we're connecting with folks and we're seeking to just understand Here's your sin. And it's, I, it's boy, it's really noticeable to me because I'm really good at noticing yours before mine, right? Here's your sin. Well, there's a reason why that is. We know there's a fallen heart. There's, a, there's, a, there's an inclination to rebel against God in all authority. There's things that have happened in your life that have added fuel to the fire. God understands that. He doesn't condone it and he doesn't accept it. It's why Jesus came. But what if we started kind of at the, well, I don't want to use the word, literally the ground level with folks. Lastly, I think, what if, what if we lived boldly and fearlessly in this world? What if we lived boldly and fearlessly in this world as those whose enemy has been defeated and whose future is incredibly bright. What if we lived like we believed that the best is yet to come? What kind of impact would we make? What if we lived this life fully enjoying all the goodness that God has given us? giving Him glory, living with hearts of thankfulness, enjoying that goodness for the purpose it's been given, to glorify Him and bless others. Storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust and robber can't have it. What if we use this life for that? What if we lived as the most joyful, fearless lovers of this life, while clearly given the impression that this ain't it. The really, really, really good stuff is coming. Can I tell you how to get in on that? It's through Jesus. And you'll hear these words from Paul and then I'm going to pray. What if we lived in a way so that if there was no resurrection we were most to be pitied? Boy, I would say the church of Christ would rock this world for the sake of King Jesus. Pray with me. The musicians and the men that are going to help with the Lord's Supper, please come forward. Father, I am in awe. I'm, I, I stand here now with this contrast of who I am apart from you and who I am in Christ. What a contrast that is. And it's all because of what you have done for us in your son. The one who takes on flesh to die in our place. And because he walked this earth in flesh and blood, he, he understands the things we go through. Then he stares death and the devil straight in the face and defeats it for us. And now because of that, the chains have fallen off. Because death is coming. It is. And now it comes as one who has nothing on us. Because of what Christ has done. Oh, Father, help us to live in a way that shows that we believe the things that we profess to believe. Purify your church. Just continue to make us more fit instruments to reflect your glory and live in light of the hope that has been given us by a living, dying, and resurrected and living again Messiah. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.